Good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Hey, we're going to be in James chapter 1 this morning. Uh, and uh, as you make your way there with me, I uh, just want to ask you a quick question. Favorite hot beverage? Uh, how many of you like coffee? Raise your hand. Okay, for me, the primo beverage of all time is uh, Sumatran dark roast coffee. We'll splash a half and half in there. Or if we got heavy cream, some of that. Um, but, uh, you know, a little, a little bit of that and your dark roast coffee where it tastes a little smoky. Oh, I love it. Okay. If it tastes like it punched you in the mouth when you drink it, it's perfect. Right? Um, <laughs> and um, uh, how about tea drinkers? Any tea drinkers? Okay. Yeah. Some of you. My son loves tea. We have a teapot next to the coffee pot in our house. Uh, to me, tea is dead leaves and water, um, and <laughs> but we have a little carousel of packages of tea at our house next to the coffee maker. You know, it's great if you're a singer. For me, you know, tea is kind of like lesser version of coffee. Like, um, I'll drink it if I don't have coffee available, but it's not really my jam. Uh, how about cocoa? Any any cocoa drinkers? All right, yeah, cocoa. I love that too. Um, you know what? All these things have in common. Take hot water, right? And you mix this magical potion in the top of it, and then it all just kind of infuses through the water, right? And then once you've done that, you can't separate the tea or the cocoa or the coffee from the water anymore, right? It's completely infused all of that water, and it's not water anymore. Now it's something else, and it's transformed. Right, totally changes the flavor, the color, the taste. What you've mixed it with entirely transforms that into something other than mere water. It's now infused with the thing that has transformed it. Right, and it will always be that ever afterward. Now, here's the point of the illustration: the Lord is working the same way in your life and in mine when it comes to His wisdom and applying His gospel to us. What happens when you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you put your trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins in your place and was raised from the dead to give you new life? When you believe that, what happens is, is the Holy Spirit of God, one of the, the third person of the Trinity, comes and takes up residence within you, and He infuses you over time with the transforming power of the gospel so that your heart... Your thinking are completely and irreversibly changed. And you start becoming someone entirely different from whatever you were before. And part of that transformation is that you start seeing life in light of the gospel, in light of God's grace to you and salvation and the reality that because of Jesus' sacrifice, you get to spend eternity with Him. And in light of that, you start living in light of that fact. And, and then your whole perspective on everything in life and what's really important shifts radically. Or at least it starts to. With the intention that over by the end of your life, your perspective on everything in life aligns with God's perspective rather than the way that you used to look at it. And so the passage we're looking at today in James is about precisely that radical shift 
and about how we need to learn as people to think this way. So if you've got your Bible, um, I'd like you to I'd like to invite you to stand if you're able. We're going to look at James chapter 1, uh, about nine verses of it. If you don't have a Bible, please see me afterwards. We'd love to give you one. Okay, we have a stack of them in the back of this room, and we order them by the case. So we'd love to give you one. Uh, but for now, this is what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 9 of James chapter 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And the Lord add his blessing to his word, and let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the unchanging God. The God who has been, always is, and will always remain. The good God the Father who gives good gifts to His children. Father, help us to have Your perspective on life this morning, and I pray that our time in Your Word would help us to shift our eyes from the ways of the world and accommodate ourselves to the way that You think. May our mind look like Yours. And may our life, therefore, be transformed by Your grace as Your Spirit works the Word through us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, well, uh, there are three sections of this passage, and the first one is that God's wisdom gives us the right perspective on riches and on poverty. That's verses 9 through 11. And let me, let me underline the point again. Again, the, the whole point of this passage is about getting God's gospel-infused perspective on these areas of life. In other words, in light of Jesus and what He has done for us, how are we to think and how are we to respond to life? Right? In verses 9 to 11, what we're seeing is that God's wisdom gives each and every one of us the right perspective on riches and poverty. And to see things God's way, you need to see, first of all, that material poverty can be God's exaltation. Material poverty can be God's exaltation. Remember, this letter of James is written to a bunch of people who have had to flee persecution in Jerusalem. Remember on the day that, that, uh, that Stephen was martyred 
a great persecution broke out in the city of Jerusalem and they ran everybody who was a believer out of town except for the apostles. They were the only ones left. And so, if you can imagine this, a community of 10,000 or so believers in Jesus have all gotten run out of their houses. They've had to leave, leave with whatever they could carry. And James, who was their pastor, Jesus' half-brother James, uh, who was their pastor, is writing to them and saying, hey, remember if you're poor, some of these people would have been, relative, on a relative standard, fairly prosperous. And now all of a sudden they're refugees. You know, like, I don't know if you, they still do this on cartoons, but when I was growing up, you know, you'd see somebody... And the way that you knew they were poor was like they had like a, a, a rag tied up with their stuff in it on the end of a stick. Okay. Um, this is kind of that way. They've had to like tie up everything they can grab and flee the place they have lived their whole life. And so God, and so God is telling them here through James, look, you, God may be using this not for your humiliation, but for your exaltation. They have taken a hard punch. Amen? But what James is doing is calling him back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and that the persecuted are blessed by God. Because if you're a person who's poor in spirit, you're a person who recognizes that what, no matter what riches you have, or what riches you don't have, what you need ultimately is a Savior. Amen? And having received salvation through faith in Jesus and come under persecution as a result, guess what? You are still blessed. Why? Because even though you might be hungry, you've got the bread of life. Even though you might be thirsty, you drink from the fountain of living water that Jesus gives. And though you might be poor, you have, if you're poor in spirit, eternal riches. Amen? And no persecutor can ever take any of these things away from you. The poorest person who believes in Jesus is eternally rich beyond the imagination of a non-Christian. And on top of that, God often uses poverty to bless us into learning how to depend on Him. So that we know in our guts that when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need. See, the, something that you need to know, very, like, know not just in your head, but like where you feel it, down at the gut level, is that everything can be taken away from you in this life, everything you can see. You can lose your relationships. You can lose your family. You can lose your home. You can be living as a hobo under a bridge. And if you've got Jesus there, then you've got everything you need. Everything that's lasting. Everything that is permanent. Everything that's important. And you are still, at that moment, rich beyond the imagination of the wealthiest person on earth. Because you are a child of King of creation.
And so James is saying, look, don't forget to have God's perspective on this. Remember what Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount? How if you're persecuted, you're blessed. This is your exaltation. And they're like, say, what now? Just like, that would be what I would think too, right? Have you noticed that I'm like wearing all the clothes that I own? What do you mean this is my exaltation? James is saying, no, this is your exaltation. The loss of your resources may be the thing that God is using to teach you the most important thing you can ever know. That when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need. Well, what about the few of them that are rich still? Well, James gives strong warnings to them that their material riches and even their physical lives are not permanent and such glory as they supply is not a good substitute for eternal glory and lasting riches. Amen? So he's saying, look, glory in your humiliation because guess what? God is giving you a test too. You know, Poverty and prosperity are both tests. And of the two of them, prosperity is the tougher one. You know, the people of Israel did not have nearly the problem uh, following the Lord when they were wandering around living in tents in the desert as they did once they got into the land. Once they built their paneled houses. Once they had crops growing and fruit trees and and they were having kids and they had all of these beautiful flocks and herds they could look out on and they could go, you know, this is security right here. I got lots of stuff for many years. I got food in the freezer. I got it in the basement. I got it, uh, you know, I've been canning stuff. Like I'm taken care of for a long time, right? And the problem is, is that when you're prosperous, you can start to think that this is the point of life. There's the pursuit of prosperity. And so James says, look, remember, like a flower of the grass, you will pass away. Now, my wife loves flowers. If you come to our house, you will see there's green stuff everywhere. Like, I don't know how many plants we have on this big, in front of the big picture window. We've got like three amaryllises and some bamboo growing and a calancho and a, and a cyclamen and you know, all kinds of aloe. We've got stuff vining over the bookcase. I mean, we've got stuff everywhere that's green and growing, right? And when that stuff flowers, it's spectacular. I love to get an amaryllis every Christmas. Get that bulb, stick it in that little that little uh, cocoa uh, choir uh, stuff, you know, in that pot. You water it, and all of a sudden, like this flower shoots out of there that's like two foot tall, has giant blooms on it. It's amazing. It takes about six weeks to go from bulb to flower. It's so cool. It's like six bucks. It's highly entertaining. Okay, <laughs> but but anyway, okay, but you know how long that flower lasts? Like a couple of weeks. That's it. And believe it or not, in about six weeks from now, we'll have daffodils popping up in the yard. People who owned our house uh, prior to us planted thousands, apparently, of daffodils down through the woods behind us, out in the yard where the grass is. That's just really weird to me. But anyway, we'll have daffodils popping up. And those daffodils are amazing for about a week. And James is saying, look, this is your life. 
This is your life. Your life is short. Amen? Talking to Karen the other day, I got to have surgery on Friday because I injured myself and it didn't heal. I, we, I can't hear very well out of this ear. And so we're talking about, okay, well, after that, I probably ought to go get checked out, maybe get a hearing aid. I don't want to do that. And I said, you know, I thought it would take, I would take longer to get old. <laughs> right? I got these on my face because I can't see my Bible without them. Okay? Life is short. And so James is saying, look here. When the sun rises with its scorching heat, it withers the grass and the flower fails and its beauty perishes. Okay? Looking in the mirror this morning, beauty perishes. Right? <laughs> and in the same way, a rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. In other words, don't act like and don't live your life like pursuing prosperity and health and like, you know, better eye cream is all that there is in life. Right? Don't forget the Lord. He's the point. And so James is saying, humble yourself before the Lord. You who have riches. And by the way, if you're, if you're an American in 2024, you have hit the all-time world historical lottery. You know that on a, on a per capita income basis, you are twice as rich as the people in Great Britain. Great Britain is the fifth largest economy in the world. And Americans, on an average basis, have twice the income. You're doing 60% better than people in France. We are the wealthiest people who have ever existed on this planet. And so don't forget the Lord. Don't build your life around stuff and riches and making sure that all of the upholstery in your life is thick. Because God does not care overly much about your comfort. He cares a great deal about your character. And so humble yourself before the Lord. Use your wealth to serve the Lord while you have it, but don't rely on it. It fades faster than you and I do. So don't take pride in it. Humble yourself before the Lord. Amen? Amen. Now, uh, this passage also gives us the right perspective on trials and temptations. If we look, if we understand uh, that Jesus has died on the cross for us, that he, that he, that God loves us, we get God's perspective on trials and temptation. Look at verses twelve to fifteen. Verse twelve, pretty straightforward encouragement: stand strong in the face of serious testing. It's a good reminder, not only to uh, them but to us. These guys are still enduring very serious testing. And so James is reminding them not only to stand up under it, but to look forward to what's coming, which is here called the crown of life. Now, I don't think it's a literal crown that we will wear. I think it's a poetic description of eternal life that we enjoy forever with Jesus when we are face to face with him. It's James' way of saying, hey, 
you are going to live forever with Jesus. Remember that. And as Paul said, you know, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18, this light, momentary, by the way, these are in comparison with, because when you're in suffering, it doesn't feel light or momentary. But in comparison with eternity, is, prepare, is light, momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary and transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's what James is saying here. Your present trials and your suffering are blessings because beyond them lies glory beyond comparison. Blessed is the man who perseveres or remains steadfast under trial. Why do you stand the test? Why do you stand the test? Because you understand the gospel. You have believed in Jesus. And you know that this life is not all there is. Amen? If you think that this life is all there is, then whenever somebody says, you know, look, dude, you only get one trip around the merry-go-round, why would you suffer for the sake of Jesus? What you want to then say is, well, because I don't believe that there's only one trip. I believe there's an eternity ahead of me and that I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to live with Him forever. So do with me what you will. Put me in prison. Abuse me while I'm there. And ultimately put me to death. And I'm going to glory. That's fine. This life is short anyway. And it's going to be over quick. And so he says, stand fast under trial. And know that you're blessed because... As believers in Jesus, the crown of life is yours. You'll have eternal life. One of my favorite stories from the early church martyrdom is the martyrdom of Polycarp. Okay? Polycarp was disciple of the Apostle John, and uh, they were going to put him to death. He was 86 years old at the time. And they said, Look, dude, you're an old man. I'm paraphrasing, okay? But um, you're an old man. If you just write out a renunciation of your faith in Jesus, then we won't martyr you. Just say, you know what? This isn't worth it. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. They get a big fire going. They're like, if you don't renounce your faith in Jesus, we're putting you in that. And he says, for 86 years, my Lord has been faithful to me. How could I be unfaithful to him? Here is Jesus. And they burned him to death, men and women. But you know what he knew? I'm going to see Jesus. And the crown of life is mine. And this is a blessing for which I will be rewarded. Amen? Now, 
It's a great story. You should look it up. It's, it's widely available. You can read it on the internet, okay? It'll be way better than anything else you've read today on the internet, all right? It'll be a lot better news for you. Um, but uh, verse 13 to 15 kind of gives you the life cycle of sin. And he says, look, you've got, you got to have God's perspective on sin. He said, when you experience uh, temptation to sin, you can't try to justify it by saying that God is behind it. Since the word, uh, since the word tempting here can also be translated testing, it could be that some people are going so far as to say, well, look, you know, I have this temptation to sin, but it's really God's testing me. God, in other words, God is, is up, is, is, has put me up to this. He's put this in front of me. Some people, um, even in our day, try to make that move, don't they? They go, well, you know, you see, God made me this way. And that's why I'm tempted by this sinful thing I want to do. There's even a song about it. I was born this way, right? Is that what the Scripture says? No. The fact is, is that you're tempted by this sinful thing because of who you are on the inside and God did not make you to be like that. You are that way because you are a descendant of Adam who was the first sinner and then he passed that sin nature on to you. And James says all these excuses doesn't wash and then he gives us a couple reasons why. Verse 13 he says God isn't tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt anybody. In other words, God doesn't find sin appealing in any way. And after all, how could he? Sin is rebellion against God. So why would this be something he would want to encourage? Amen? And on top of that, what possible reason would God have for tempting someone to rebel against him when he knows what we know, if you have God's perspective on these things, that pain and destruction is all that results from sin. There might be at the beginning a few moments of pleasure in it, but eventually, if you keep feeding that monster, what happens is it eats you. Pain and destruction is what results. And so no, temptation to sin is not a trial from God or a temptation that God supplied. And as you keep reading in verses 14 and 15, what you see there is James' explanation for how sin works and why you can't blame God for it. Now, the Bible speaks in two ways about temptation. Some temptation comes from the outside and is presented to us, right? Very much like as you read Matthew chapter 4, uh, or I believe it's Luke chapter 4, where uh, Satan comes to the Lord Jesus and he says, Hey, turn these stones into bread. Or hey... You see all these kingdoms of the world? I'll give them all to you. Or hey, throw yourself down from here and I will. Uh, you'll be able to give a powerful demonstration of who you are because God will send the angels surely to protect you. Right? That's temptation coming from the outside. 
That's not what James is addressing. What he's addressing here is temptation that rises within us because of who we are. Karen and I were talking to a parent recently. We were talking about uh, how your kids grow up. You know what your kid's greatest problem is? It's not the barbarians outside the gate. It's the barbarians inside the gate. It's the ones that already exist in here, right? It's not, it's not my friends. It's not the culture. It's my heart. Right? And that's what James is addressing here. That, that there are sinful desires that have their origin within our own souls because we are born children of Adam with a sinful nature. And we retain that sinful nature until we die and the glorification that we receive as believers in Jesus removes it. So, in other words, you and I come hardwired out of the womb for sin. Amen? And a part of us, even as Christians, loves that part. We're like, oh, yeah, sin looks great. It's so appealing. And that part of us has to be, according to the Scripture, continually be put to death. Romans 8 says it this way, If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Right? You've got to put to death that part of you. A big part of growth in the Christian life is doing exactly that. And so verses 14 and 15 uh, explain what happens when we sin. Well, our desires lure us and entice us to do what we shouldn't because of our sinful nature within us. By the way, that word desire in Greek is the word epithumia. A lot of times you don't even know that, but you do need to know this. It's often translated lust. Okay? Your lustful desire, your sinful desire rises within you. In other words, this isn't a neutral thing. A lot of times people think, well, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's only a sin when you give in to it. No, no. If it's arising from within you, the reason it is rising is because that desire is itself part of your sin nature and it is itself sinful. Temptation coming from outside you to, be, to experience a moment of, I don't know about that, is not sin. But when that desire is rising up from within your own soul, that is sin. It's sin at the embryonic stage. And you have to abort it then. You have to put that to death. Because if you allow it to grow, you allow it to grow from right there, it will come forth as sinful actions. And if you let it grow from there, from sinful, from a desire to a sinful action to now a sinful life. When it grows, it says when it's full grown, it brings forth death. One of the best uh, speakers on this I've heard recently is a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, who for many years of her life was a, uh, a professor of queer theory and English at Syracuse University. And she was... Um, living as a lesbian and so forth. 
And she, she said, I had a tenured position. And so I was tenured in sin. And, and so she said, look here. Um, she said, what happens is, is that sin doesn't stay where you put it. I love that line. It always seeks to dominate and control more and more and more of your life. More and more and more. And we think we can negotiate with it. We think over here when it's just a desire, well, that's not a big deal. No, no, you've got to kill that. A thousand times a day if necessary because what will happen is it will not stay there. It will grow. And once it's born into sinful actions in your life, it will grow further. And if when it gets full grown, it will take over. Let me just give you an example. Don't raise your hand. Okay? But how many of you know someone who is, let's say they're in their 80s, and they are as bitter and nasty everyone that they know as they can possibly be. They are as sour as three-week expired milk every time you get around them. You know what I'm talking about? You know why they're that way? Because they have fed that resentment and anger for a lifetime. That's why. And it grew and it grew and it grew into this spirit of grumbling and complaining and bitterness and resentment until that's all that will come out their mouth. You know what I'm talking about? Or you meet a guy uh, who has given himself over to pornography on the internet and it consumes him. Consumes him. And he will burn down his relationship with his wife, with his family, with his children, with his job. It will take everything away from him and he will not stop. Why? Because sin will not stay where you put it. And when lust has conceived and it is full grown, it is brings forth death. And it destroys everything it touches, including the life of that person. But not just them. There are ripples that go out wider than them. Amen? So, James is saying, look, sin is dangerous. Don't excuse it. Don't make room for it. Kill it. Kill it at the embryonic stage. When it's still little enough, you can get it killed. Otherwise, it'll be like that scene at the end of Little Shop of Horrors. That movie about that, that, that little alien plant that, he, that the guy fed in his florist shop. A little bit of blood every day. And then that dude grew and grew and grew. And it starts out real cute and goes, feed me, Seymour. And then at the end of the movie, it's got him by the throat. And it's choking him down. You feel me? So you've got to kill it when it's little bitty. Otherwise, it'll take over and it will take your life. So, 
get God's perspective here on sin and trials and temptations. Sin always wants to grow. It always wants more space than you ever intended to give it. It will cost you far more in every way than you want to pay, and it will make you stay in a mess far longer than you want to stay. It doesn't stay where you put it. It tries to take over your life completely. But we also see at the end of this passage something totally different and wildly encouraging, which is about God's goodness. Verse 16 to 18. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. In other words, hey, remember, God will not bring sin into your life. Why not? Because God is good. He wants to bring good things into your life. Verse 17. Um, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Now, this is giving us a reason, another reason why God will not ever tempt you to sin. Because God is good. and He would not give you something horrible that will take over and destroy your life. It would be like a, a, a father uh, that, you know, when his kid asked for a sandwich, gave him a rattlesnake. Why would you do that? God is not like that. God is good. So as verse 16 says, don't be deceived. In fact, he gives perfect gifts. Not just good gifts. Like you asked for a sandwich, you got a sandwich. He gives Perfect gifts. Far better gifts than we need. Far better gifts than we deserve. Far better gifts than we even are aware of. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible says here, is from Him. He's the Father of lights. That means there's no darkness in Him. There's no part of Him you have to be afraid will turn evil. Like there is with me and you, right? We have a part of our soul that lingers, that is evil, but God doesn't have that. He's the same good God He's always been and will always remain. And you can always trust God to be good to you and to give you only good things that are for your benefit. There's no variation or shadow due to change. He is the unchangeably good God who loves you. Now, if these things are true, though, some people might wonder why God allows trials and pain and allow us to have all the struggle that we have against the sinful nature and the desires it produces within us. After all, if God only gives good and perfect gifts, why let you struggle? Well, James anticipates that question and answers it in verse 18. I want you to notice something about verse 18. First, that God has already already, if you're a believer in Jesus, given you a good and perfect gift. What is it? You were brought forth by the word of truth of God's own will. What does that mean? It means that God planned and executed His plan to save you from sin and death and hell. James is giving you the shorthand version, but that's what that means. That God of His own will planned to save you and did. 
he, get, he got you the gospel. That is what's called here the word of truth. And by it, you were reborn. You were brought forth or born again by faith in Jesus Christ. That is a good and perfect gift that you've already received. In fact, it's the best one that there is. It's the one from which all of the others flow. It's the beginning of your relationship with God. And after that, you get more and more and more good and perfect gifts. In fact, so many that you don't even imagine how good your life is for eternity. You know, when Paul talks about the weight of glory, there's a weight laid up for us in heaven. What he's talking about is you can't even measure what God has planned to do for you. You don't have a unit of measurement big enough. To understand the treasures of eternity that God, because He loves you, is giving you. But let me give you just an example, okay? You remember the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark? They get the Lost Ark and then they wheel it into that warehouse in a box, right? And then you kind of, this, this, the camera kind of pans back and you see how vast this warehouse is and you're supposed to get, oh, this is where all the secret government conspiracy stuff gets covered up. But it's like acres and acres long. It's this huge thing, right? Millions of square feet, apparently, fading into the distance. And the ark is hidden there. Well, I don't believe that, okay? First of all, I never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity. I don't think the government is that smart. Okay, <laughs> but, um, but, but, the, but the idea of that vast warehouse that contains all these treasures, when you think about God's love for you and how much He has to give you, you should think about that. That just stretches on into the distance beyond where you can see. Is God that good? Yes, He's that good. In fact, better than what you imagine. God planned from eternity past to bring Jesus into the world to save you because He loved you personally. And He is taking you home to be with Him forever. And you are, according to the Scriptures here, a kind of the first fruits of the new creation. You are part of the first fruits, the beginning of the harvest, if you will, of what God is going to do. You know, the world will not always be like this. Some of y'all are thinking, praise God. <laughs> right? The world will not always be like this. Those of you who didn't think that, you haven't lived long enough. Okay, <laughs> but... But the world will not always be like this. It will not always be this screwed up. I don't believe in the new creation that we will have it be like four below zero. Ever. Okay? I'll be running around in swim trunks for all creation. Right? <laughs> I think that's going to be the reality. Okay, some of you don't imagine that. Okay? <laughs> that's not a good look. But in my glorified body, it'll be different. <laughs> okay? Um, 
But that's the reality, okay? God is making a new world. How do we know? Because we have the first fruits of the new creation. Look around at your brothers and sisters and see what God is already doing. And if what God is already doing is good, how much better will the full harvest of all that God plans to do be? It will be so much better. Amen? So, let's pray as we close. Alright? God, You have demonstrated Your goodness and Your faithfulness and Your love for us supremely in Jesus Christ, but You continue to demonstrate Your goodness to us in the way that You show us Your goodness not only in our lives, but in the lives of other people with whom we are in fellowship as part of the local congregation. In Your Holy Spirit who continues to work in us as we yield to Him to kill the remaining sin in our lives. Father, we pray that You would help us put that to death. That You would help us every day whenever those evil desires rise within us to kill them right then and not allow them to grow, not allow them space to breathe and take over our lives and put us to death. Father, may we be putting them to death instead by Your grace, by Your Holy Spirit power as Your Word works within us. And Father, wherever we find ourselves, whatever circumstances we're in, I just pray that we would have Your perspective and that we would look at what You've done for us in light of the Gospel and therefore see all of life differently as, as a way to experience Your love and Your care for us, as a way to have our character transformed, as a way for us to, to be conformed to Jesus. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.